Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we talk with Larry and Elizabeth Mueller from Brandon Hills Vineyard in Yatkinville, North Carolina. Brandon Hills is a boutique vineyard focusing on making wines that appeal to everyone. Wine Class with the Wine Mountains is back. This time they teach us about terpenes and how they really boost the aroma of a wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So we're here today with Larry and Elizabeth Mueller from Brandon Hills Vineyard. Larry, Elizabeth, welcome to Cork Talk. Well, thank you very much for having us today. We're excited uh, to have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure, and uh, it's been a long time. So, um, my name is Larry Mueller, and this is my wife Elizabeth, and uh, we own uh, Brandon Hills Vineyards. It's about three miles south of Yadkinville, in the beautiful Yadkin Valley of North Carolina. You do have some really nice sloping hills when you're there too. Like you sit out on the deck, and you can see. This is why they called it Brandon Hills. In the area, I guess it is, right? Yes, that is correct. And as you guys know, uh, most vineyards you go to in the world, all in beautiful, uh, picturesque, beautiful areas or beautiful places. And uh, Brandon Hills, we may, may not have the best, but uh, we certainly do have a very nice uh, view of the 40 acres of rolling hills, which was originally a tobacco farm, a vineyard. As was a lot of the vineyards. In- that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. So tell us, how did you come to Brandon Hills Vineyard? Well, it's actually quite a long story, but I'm, I'm sure we can go through this. Um, I've told it so many times. So prior to 2017, uh, we were looking for a small vineyard to buy. And we were looking in southern uh, Virginia, either nothing in that sort of price point or they're too expensive. And obviously when you get to like a 5 or $10 million range, the amount of work that goes into that, as you know, it's full time. So we have other business interests as well. So it would be just too much and the distance to get there. So then we started looking like North Carolina. Obviously, we had traveled many places in North Carolina, Yadkin Valley. And um, about as one Saturday morning in 2017, in February, and I was looking on the internet, Brandon Hills Vineyard. I said to Elizabeth, hey, you ever heard of a Brandon Hills Vineyard? She said, no, never. <laughs> I said, well, get in the car. We're going out there now. Perfect. It looks quite interesting. So we got out there and a young guy working behind the bar in the tasting room. And he's like, oh, how are you? And it's starting to snow, actually. It's actually starting to snow. Oh, wow. Snow was coming down and uh, said, open every single bottle you have. Don't worry, I'll pay for it. The guy was, looked a bit nervous. <laughs> I said, I'll pay for them all. Like, he didn't know what I was trying to do. So I tasted all the wine. And I was like, hmm, interesting. I go, well, thank you very much. We paid, we left. Oh. And as I left, I called my estate agent and said, hey, Shirley, this place, we've got to get onto this. Some has some potential there. And that was in February, and by April, the deal was done. So that's how the whole thing started. Like we saw that the foundation was there. Right. The land, the foundation had been set. Even the wines had the potential to, to build on. So that's how the whole thing started. It makes for a great story. I mean, go in, open up every bottle. Yes. Uh, you knew what you were doing. Obviously, the person working at the time was like, what is going on? No, this guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'd never encountered that no. before. So, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, that's how the whole thing started. And uh, when we took possession of the vineyard in the April 2017, we shut it down for three or four months, uh, did some alterations, uh, fixed things up. For example, Pam had a big, uh, that fish tank. Mm-hmm. And then it's not just the fish tank, uh, fish tank. Sorry, uh, <laughs> the um, downstairs, the actual filtration system was just huge. Well, it was a big tank. I can only imagine it. Yeah. had to so, take up a good portion. Yeah, it's an ocean, it's a sea uh, tank, right? It's a salt water. Salt, salt water tank. So the filtration system downstairs was like just huge. I'm like, oh man, like we aren't in the oceanarium business here. We, <laughs> like we in the winery business, we need a place to put store wine, to sell wine. This thing's got to go. So eventually found a guy in Winston-Salem to come there and just, I gave it to him. Okay. You just take it. You can have it. Dismantle it and take it. You can have the fish. I don't, I don't want one cent for it. It took him like three weeks. I'm sure it was massive. A month. Yeah. First took the fish out. Right. Nemo was still in there alive. <laughs> And what about Dory? Was Dory still there too? <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. And they had to get all the then to drain that thing and then dismantle the whole thing downstairs. Oh wow. That was a big project. Yeah. And then we put in that new refrigerator, 
put in the dishwasher, the back um, kitchen, and have that other tasting area. It's a nice way to make it a little more functional, too, because yes. now you have the big bar in the middle, and then you also have the one on the side there, too, so you can kind of split things apart if you need to. Exactly. So um, what else did we do that? I think that was about it, really. Just generally painted the place and fixed it up and got things uh, ready for reopening. And uh, we opened in July 2017. Uh, as you can imagine, things were pretty slow in the beginning. And I said, told Elizabeth, it's going to take five years. And now we're in our fifth year. So it's come full cycle, full transition from some day sitting there, not one customer even. It's pretty disheartening. You're just sitting there, not, not one customer even. Well, you had to rebuild the brand a little bit because it wasn't as popular when you bought it. And then you took those months to, to redo things. And so folks weren't used to coming by. And so now word has gotten out, I guess, and you've built a following. And I'm sure Saturdays and Sundays and maybe even Fridays are much busier than that. They certainly are. And yes, you're correct. To rebrand it and get the name up and being sort of like out in the middle of nowhere too. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and being a small boutique winery, not being allowed to have the signage, which is one of my real pet peeves, like with the state, right? Why can't we have some? Why must we, we be open like five days a week, whatever it is, and have people there working from Wednesday to Sunday and on all this, you know? So you aren't allowed to have signage on the highways. And word of mouth, Facebook, Instagram, going around to little coffee shops where they sell wine and trying to promote it, doing live tastings myself. Trying to get the word out there, Elkin, the Fairfield Inn, you know, right. having on Friday evenings and customers there. Oh, Brandon Hills, where's that? People look all confused, <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it took, it's taken us five years of um, just grinding away at it, constant grinding. So you've talked about kind of the the structural things that you did to the tasting room and, and the facility itself. What about the vineyard? Can you talk about um, how what the changes were to the vineyard since... Okay, so when we bought the vineyard, it was in uh, February, as we said, when we first visited it right. and in those beginning months. So you couldn't really see, and obviously with um, our lack of knowledge of vineyards per se, of vines per se, I mean, the, the vineyard was sleeping. So you couldn't really tell per se what was going on. But when the vines started to come alive, we noticed that there was a lot of... Uh, maybe some disease that had not been looked after so well. And we had to, um, to make a decision. Are we going to pull all these vines out or are we going to, and they could have survived another four or five years. We planted some and you're going to, eventually you get the point you're going to have to pull them anyway. Right, sure. Uh, or do we just restart right away? So we decided, no, we're just going to pull everything out and restart. So here we are three years roughly later. Uh, they're looking pretty good now. Struggle with some of them. The Vermentina we're struggling with, it's probably going to pull that out and replant uh, Chardonnay this year. And we still have two different clones of Merlot, which okay. are doing the best. Hmm. For some reason, the Merlot just hmm. loves it there. Yeah. Could be the site specific. I mean, it, yes, it must be. It is. Merlot is a very picky grape. Yeah. For some reason, it loves it there. And um, we're hoping to get some nice Mulo this year, as long as there's no frosts, of course. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so um, and then we have uh, Barbera, which is one of our signatures. So, And then we have Petit Fadeau, the clone 400, which is used by Jones von Drell and all of them. It's a good. It's a good uh, and then we have Cabernet Sauvignon. So, but like I said, the Mulo, for some reason, if you actually go back to the 2010 Mulo, and we still have some in the library there, still drinking, and it's still drinking, actually tastes pretty good. So the, for some reason, the Merlot loves that little hilltop there. Mm. Yeah, we, we had, um, an old, I can't remember the vintage we had, but it was one from the previous <clears throat> owners, and we had it for a while. And it may, was it a three maybe, or a four? It may have been. But anyway, we had it many years later, yeah. and it was still there. I think it was a seven. It might have been a seven. It must have been a seven, yeah. correct. And it was stunning still. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think we had a, a 10 as well before. Yeah. And it, you're right. It, it was, it, this was maybe 2017, 2016 when we had it. And it was still holding up very nicely. So I can only imagine it's still doing really well. Yeah. Even the grapes last year looked pretty good on the Merlot. But we didn't pick them. We just left them. The birds ate them. Get their last But this year could be a whole different story. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, 
So yeah, and also just going back to the vineyard. I mean, as you guys know, it's a never-ending, uh, never-ending work, and we'll only see now again how many died over the winter and all that. And so it's constant replanting, rethinking. Even though we only have just under four acres, it's still a lot of work. I can't even imagine what the big guys, the amount of time and effort that goes into it. And we have two ladies helping us in the vineyard, and we even get students from the college to help us. So Elizabeth and Amanda, I mean, they they there in the evenings, sometimes weekends, hmm. helping, spraying, uh, pruning. I mean, I can't even imagine what 40 acres would be of vines. Yeah, you would, need, you would need more than the, the, that number of people to, yes, to, exactly. to take care of it. So sure. need 20 or more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, it's a lot of work. People don't realize, and neither did I until I embarked on this journey. Like, uh, it's one thing drinking wine, but now you realize what it, what it takes to make one bottle of wine. You certainly do appreciate it. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So let's actually talk a little bit about that journey then. Um, so you mentioned that you were looking for a vineyard in either Southern Virginia or North Carolina. Why? What inspired you to want to purchase a vineyard? Um, just something that was insi- inside me, I think. Just something that, uh, that uh, for the love of wine and that sort of, I think you have some sort of passion for wine. Right? And to be in this business as well, you can't have any fear of, uh, of uh, it's a very, very difficult business, which I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people you've interviewed. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's it's, a common theme. <laughs> you can't be intimidated by this business because there's lots of ups and downs and a lot of challenges in many different ways, whether it's the weather vineyards, uh, uh, disease, getting your product's name out there, getting it marketed. How are you going to do it? Would you do it through restaurants, through supermarkets, direct sales only, on the internet? So there's a lot of challenges here to, um, to get stuff out there. Yeah. So it's not, not an easy business. I know a lot of people just think it's like, I'd love to own a vineyard. Well, yeah, it's, it's a, lot, a lot to work to it. So. And you seem to really... Think about the logistics of it too, from everything from the growing to the production to the selling and the marketing to running the day-to-day business. You seem to have a good handle on all of that. So you're very business-minded. Yeah. So we worked it out eventually. <laughs> we weren't really in the wine industry. So I mean, we, like we said, we grew up in South Africa where um, they've made wine for over 400 years. And so we used to go to a lot of the vineyards, Cape Town, Stellenbosch, and all that. Started out there. And then when we got to North Carolina in the late 90s, uh, we started traveling around here. And, and you know, in those days, there wasn't much. Right. There was. And the wine was terrible. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. It was it, terrible. It takes a while <laughs> to It was time. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look back all those years ago, how far North Carolina wine has come in all aspects, and especially the Yadkin Valley, it's, it's quite unreal. Where it is today, wow, certainly encouraging. We're very proud to be part of it. So we're doing our little bit to try and promote it, get over the, a lot of the, the people. As soon as you say North Carolina wine, they're like, oh, it must be that sweet stuff. And you try and tell them, no, we actually make great dry white wines, rosé. Uh, we actually got a silver medal in New York against France, Italian, Australian rosés. And they go, no, it can't be. Well, you've got to come out there and taste it. You know? We make great red wine too. It's come mm-hmm. a long way. It's highly drinkable now. We make some Bordeaux blends. I'm telling you, I've been confused the friendship we had to. Yeah. If you put a blind tasting there. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think North Carolina needs to embrace that more. People recognize the single varietals. People recognize Cab Sauv, Cab But we shouldn't really be afraid of blending because that's how you can really create something unique, something special, something that tells what the area is. Exactly. It's like Virginia at Petit Verdot, I think, is their like, go-to red wine, right? Like North Carolina needs to have some sort of direction here too. Where are we going? Like what is our white wine? What is our national red wine? Is it going to be a Bordeaux blend or is it going to be a single varietal? Me personally, I love uh, blends. You, you, you just can express things so much more versus just a single uh, varietal. But I, I would say in great years when it's a great vintage, then you can make a great just a 100% Petit Fadeau or Cab Franc or or to Shambus and whatever. Mm-hmm. You've got to work with what nature gives you, with, with what's in the vineyard. Exactly. Me personally, I love to play with the different uh, grapes to make a good Bordeaux blend. Hmm. So, to me, it's just a challenge. People ask me, hey, Larry, how do you come up with all this stuff? 
So a lot of times I'm just like, if I'm driving or when I used to be sitting on planes or in the <coughs> airport, got nothing else to do, I just start thinking of things. It's like writing a hit song, right? So thinking like, oh, okay, I make so much petite photo, so much Merlot, and you're just like, oh, that's what you're going to do. But inevitably, it never works out like that, as you know. <laughs> Once you get there and you start make, doing the blending, it's like, okay, no, it needs a bit more of this. No, take that out. Put this in. Take through this. So, and eventually works out in the end. So let's let's maybe dive a little bit into into the wine process. So, your vineyard is is planted, replanted, and you're hoping to get to harvest grapes this year Correct. in 2022. But you've, you you're still selling wine. You're still selling North Carolina wine in your tasting room. Uh, so talk about where that wine is made, maybe, and and kind of the approach then to getting those blends that are specific to Brandon Hills. Okay, so we have a partnership with uh, Windsor Run Cellars. Uh, Chuck Johnson, he's been very good. Him, Chuck and Jamie have been very good to us from the start, uh, from when we started. A lot of guidance and a lot of help. In the beginning, that first year, six months a year, just how to get started. Uh, and then uh, once we got a grip of what's going on, uh, started to impart what we were looking for, trying to get like our wines, let's just take the dry wines, the white wines, the red wines. We're trying to go in a specific way, what kind of taste we're looking for, and impart that to get that uh, that kind of taste, which you've got now, I think. So, And obviously, if, as you know, every vintage can't be the same, but we get a pretty sort of close now. And um, so we only use uh, grapes from the Yankin Valley for now. If, until our vines are ready, it all comes from... Uh, the vicinity in the Yadkin Valley. Very cool. None, none of it's made anywhere else. I would say ninety percent would come from Windsor Run or Shadow Springs. So, what is what are some of those flavors that you would that you're looking for in white wine and red? What are stylistic things that you're looking for on on the red wines? Like we have our Barbera, which is a medium-bodied uh, Italian wine, more like a everyday wine, and then we have the Raptor Red, which is a blend as well. I would say it's medium to full. And then we started making the Raptor Red uh, Reserve, which only made in the best years. So we made the 2017, which was predominantly Merlot with a bit of Cab Sauvignon and then some Petit Fadeau and some Chamberson. And that sold out in no time. Last year it was already sold out. And people demanding the next reserve. Well, we're not going to just make a reserve for the sake <laughs> right. of making it. If you can control the weather, exactly. you'd be a very rich man. Yes. <laughs> So, 2019, as you know, it's probably the best vintage ever. It'll be, I don't know, hopefully in the next 10, 20 years, we'll even get a year like that again. We've made, we have just released the 2019 Raptor Reserve, which is a blend of uh, Cab Sauvignon, Petit Fadeau, and Merlot. Just three wines this time. Turned the whole, topsy-turvy, turned the whole thing on its head. Hmm. So it's a big red wine, um, 14.5% alcohol. So far, it's selling very well. Yeah. So we're looking, we're looking for that like nice, like Bordeaux, like a like a Hortby Duck, or uh, uh, that kind of like style of the of the red wine. Smooth, nice, nice drinking, great nose. That's what we're looking for. Something Just, a little more expressive then. Yes. Yeah. And you have a lot of people coming to the vineyard. A lot of people are only starting out to drink red wine. So you got to like. Think of what your customers right. want too. Sure. Somebody's if it's too big, too tannish, too many tannins, all that. Some people it's too much for them. Like they, right. You got to have like something that's also just nice, gentle, if you want to call it that, mellow that somebody can can drink. So, not just what we like. I'll never forget what Chuck Johnson said when we first went to meet him, and he said, "Just remember one thing." Whatever wine you make, and you don't make it to what you want, because you'll have a lot of wine to drink, most probably. <laughs> you got to think of what your customers want. I'm like, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, it's good advice. Might yes. be a little little hard to 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 do it, to go in that direction, but it, it makes sense. Yes. certainly. Uh, so we certainly do listen to um, our customers as well, what their likes are and their dislikes. 
trying to make something just nice, smooth, something uh, everyday drinking, drinking wines, especially the red wines and the white wines and everything else. So something that people just enjoy and have fun, you know, and come out there and just, because I mean, some of the, I'm trying to find the word for it. Some of the wines, even red wines, are still very, maybe too much tannins or like very, you need just like loosen up a bit. Because the average, you and I, we all professional wine, winos, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> but for the average person who's not really into this, like you're trying to encourage them to, to start with red wine and that. It has to be something that's appealing to the average palate. It's yeah. a good approach, definitely. Approachable. Yeah. It's yeah. what, what you want. Um, I mean, so even like us, like, I mean, besides North Carolina, or North Carolina wines, I mean, we drink a lot of, whether it's Brunello's, Barolo, uh, Bordeaux's, you know, different European wines. So you have a taste for some of the different types of wines. But most people probably wouldn't even know much about that, even right. heard of it. Right. So... You know, trying to make a wine yeah, that they're going to enjoy and then encourage them to go and try other stuff too. And then on the white wines, I mean, you just try and make a good, a nice Riesling, dry Riesling. It's not um, sweet. Because even that Riesling connotations, as soon as you say Riesling, first reaction you get in the vineyard. That's our first wine you taste. People are like, oh, is that that sweet stuff from Germany? No, no, this is dry. <laughs> then they're like, oh, okay. And then our rosé, try make our first rosé we made was 100% Cab Franc. Beautiful. Well, then we couldn't, we ran out of red grapes. They couldn't use all the Cab Franc drops. Mm. So then the next one we'd have make, like, just come up, like, the kitchen sink, right? Bit of Chardonnay, bit of Riesling, bit of Tramonade, bit of this, bit of that. Started out as a joke and actually turned out fantastic, you know? Just beautiful. And a bit of Merlot for the tinge that, that get that nice salmon pink color hmm. and now we just uh, bottled our next rosé and it's very similar and we should be releasing it in about two weeks and the other one sold out as well hmm. rosé is still big yes it is yeah so it really is and as we head into warmer months it's going to probably be the go-to wine for a lot of people it's yeah that's what they said the judges at the last um, nc fine wines they were blown away by the level of quality of the rosés in North Carolina that entered the competition. Well, that actually might be a good thing to talk about, but I think we're right now we're at a good point to take a quick little break. And why don't we, when we come back, let's talk about how the quality is definitely elevating over the years. I think that's a great thing okay. to pick up on. That sounds good. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks. Thank you. So we're continuing our conversation about compounds and wine. What what are we talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about terpenes. Okay. <laughs> Heard of them. Not sure I know what they are, though. So uh, tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So terpenes are a, a large class of aromatic organic compounds that are produced by plants. So not just grapes, but many different kinds of plants. And they're the main components that make up essential oils of plants. Um, there's hundreds of terpenes, and each has its own unique scent. Kind of the science and the organic chemistry of the compound is they're derived from a five-carbon unit. So they have the formula C5H8. And in grapes and wine, mostly they exist as monoterpenes. And so they're going to have multiples of that terpene unit and those have the compound C10H16. So there's hundreds of terpenes in plants everywhere, <laughs> but over 50 terpene compounds have been identified in grapes and wine. And some of those are pretty telltale and will jump out at you as we kind of work through and go through this. Mm. So terpenes are widely used in fragrances and flavors and consumer products like perfumes even cosmetics and cleaning products, foods and drinks. And we'll learn that terpenes also lend the aroma and flavor of hops that are really important in beer. Hmm. And some terpenes are also present in cannabis. And so there's this big movement lately about identifying and 
kind of pursuing specific terpenes and, and different qualities based on that in cannabis, which I found kind of interesting. Terpenes exist in grapes and wine. They are either bound volatile terpenes or unbound free volatile terpenes. And the volatile terpenes are two to eight times more common than the freeform volatile compound terpenes in wine. So the ones that are bound don't make as much of a contribution to their aroma until they become hydrolyzed, which occurs when acids or other enzymes are added or present in the winemaking process. So that's kind of an important next step there. Also interesting is that terpenes can have a naturally occurring antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and calming effect, and they're going to pass that along into the wine as well. But yeah, so that's a little bit about the science of the compound. So tell us, how does it um, how does it come to be? How does it get there in the grape itself? Yeah, so terpenes originate in the exocarp or the skin of the grapes. And so we'll talk about the winemaking process in a little bit and how those kind of manifest through there. We know that, and as I talked about, terpenes can be commonly added to food, even beer and other beverages and different products, but we're not going to see them typically added to wine. Instead, they're present in the grapes, and there are certain techniques that the winemaker or the vineyard manager can help use to bring about the terpenes and manifest those in the finished product. So they're present in the grapes. That means they're a, they are a primary compound then, right? Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. I got that right. <laughs> you can pay attention. Yeah. So to move into like the actual process and how we can make terpenes stick out more, um, as far as the vineyard, you want to make sure, you know, you have a good trellis system and vigor control and you really work on shoot thinning and, and leaf thinning because you want that light penetration to the fruit zone. Sunlight exposure has been shown to increase the terpene compound and they've done studies. We read a study about this with Riesling grapes. So we saw that as far as that, that's about the only thing we saw with the vineyard of things you could do. It just kind of is in the skin of the grapes, but the winemaking process, there's quite a bit there. So the first thing with the crush process, so wines with the skin left on during fermentation, i.e. red wine, <laughs> you get more terpenes um, because obviously they're in the skins and so they'll have longer contact to come out. White wines, when the skin's removed, can eliminate some of the stronger terpenes, but that does allow some of the lighter floral terpenes that you know may be inside of the grape to come out. So the terpenes are mostly in the skin, but there are some throughout the grape itself. And they found that there was a study about gewürztraminer and extended maceration gave higher concentrations of terpenes, which makes sense. You know, the longer it sits and, and macerates, the more terpenes you're going to get because they're in the grape itself. That does make sense. Yeah. Another thing winemakers can do is picking the yeast. So we see that with most compounds. And I think we're going to continue to see that theme throughout is that, you know, the labs that are creating these yeast strains um, for winemaking are a lot of that creation is based on getting these compounds that you want in your wine. So terpenes are one of those. So they're different strains of yeast in the fermentation process that will break down the sugar better. The reaction between that primary sugar will kind of help create these, these terpenes, these secondary, these processes. So Yeast strain is always important with any of the compounds we've been talking about. So I guess you mentioned, you know, so yeast strain is definitely important, like you said, but I, I guess also the, the grape varietal too makes a difference then. So you mentioned definitely. Riesling for sure and Kubertstraminer. So I guess maybe like thinking of other kind of floral, really highly aromatic wines, I would think like, you know, Tremonette or maybe Muscat would be yes. kind of also up there. Mm -hmm. Muscat's a big one. We haven't seen anything on Tremonette, but that's probably more so because it's a hybrid and there's not a ton of research done on that, you know, globally. Um, another thing, the wood from barrels used to ferment, like if you're fermenting in, in oak barrels or aging, um, the wood can contain terpenes as well and other, obviously other compounds, but so terpenes can come from the wood. It's a very small portion. It's mostly from the grape, but you could argue that you do get some terpenes from the aging process. So I guess that would be a tertiary compound as well. So they're all over the place, in the grape, in the winemaking, in the aging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, the 
the wood, the oak, the tree is a plant also. And since it exists mm-hmm. in all plants, it's there too. Makes sense. This is another example where wine is not so friendly. Like I want a, like a clear, straight answer. <laughs> and it's, it's yes and. Right. <laughs> always. Always, yeah. Oh, it's fine. And then the other interesting thing we found with like the, the process of wine is aging and how it affects. I know, you know, we talked about esters and how the longer it ages, they blow off. And we see that kind of with terpenes too. So when terpenes oxidize as they age, there's a loss of the varietal character in the wines. And it, it kind of depends. So there's some different terpenes that have certain flavors. So flavors such as geranium, lavender, rose, those type of terpenes decrease during aging. For example, linalool is a terpene that is in Riesling wines, and it's been shown to decrease 80% over three years. So Hmm. over three years, it falls below its detection threshold. Hmm. So these are another one of those delicate aromas that as a wine ages, especially with whites, you know, you pick up on these aromas a lot more with whites, but as a wine ages, a lot of these will fall out. Hmm. So drink them young while you can. Yes. Going back to the contradiction that always exists in wine, there are some monoterpenes that will actually increase with aging, but they're anise or mint or some of the examples of those, which you kind of probably see more with red wine. So that's probably strategic how that worked out that way. But aging does play a factor into into your terpenes and what you're going to get when you open that bottle of wine. Very interesting. So we talked about what the compound is. We talked about how it kind of comes to be and how it progresses in the winemaking process and how much we can sense it. So how would we play into the flavors and kind of pairing off of these? Yeah. So in wine, terpenes are going to present anywhere from sweet and floral to resin and herbaceous based on the varietal and and the terpenes present. You can play those up that way. But so in wine, like I said, it can really run the gamut and in plants too, from these herbaceous Christmas tree floral, pine, herbs, like all these, it really runs the course of these different flavor profiles. You know, even in wine, we might have like oregano and rosemary, peppercorn, roses and lavender we've talked about. These can all kind of be traced back to terpenes. When you open a bottle of wine that's high in terpenes, the telltale sign is going to be that intense aroma when you open the bottle. The terpenes can affect the profile of wine in three different ways. We can either it can impart that unique smell and taste, complement other flavors, or help to pre- prevent the wine from going off. So like I said, it can be, really be a variety of different flavors and aromas that might be present. And these might be present in really small concentrations, but they can have a considerable impact on how we perceive them. Very so cool. So we'll get into some specific examples now. Yeah, because like terpenes is this big body of compounds, right? And in that large group, we have a lot of different terpenes that have different smells. So we were going to go through a few examples in the wines they're with. So we have, and I'm going to mess up all the pronunciations of these. So I'm just going to throw that out there right now. (laughs) We have linalool. And so that's a terpene that gives lavender, orange, orange blossom, lily. And we see that with Grenache Cote de Rhone wine. We have geranial, which is the rose petal smell. And we see that in Muscat Blanc and some of the other Muscats as well. We have Hotrienol, and that is the smell of a linden blossom, which I have no idea what that smells like, or an elderflower smell that we see in Sauvignon Blancs. And then then they get to like some of them where they don't even give them a good name, and it's like one comma <laughs> eight hyphen cyanol. <laughs> like <laughs> But that can be a eucalyptus smell that you can get in Australian red wines, which is crazy that it's that specific. But that is the eucalyptus uh, smell, which is also found in eucalyptus trees that give them their smell. So that compound is eucalyptus. (laughs) You know, I'm drinking an Australian red right now, and I'm not getting any eucalyptus. (laughs) (laughs) Normally, I'm very suggestible, too, so... (laughs) There's rotundone, which is one that we may come back to later. We haven't decided yet, but that's the peppercorn. Um, you can get that in Syrahs, 
or even Gruner vet leaners. So those are some of the big ones with the, you know, the wines that go with them. But as, as was mentioned, they, they run the gamut, you know, it's a plant compound. So it can be almost any smell you can imagine because plants have a million different smells. Sure. They're mm-hmm. all over the place. And that's our cat. <laughs> our cats are in concert with each other. <laughs> but yeah, so we did kind of pull together a few uh, food pairing ideas. And it was a little bit difficult to pare it down because um, there are so many different ways you could go with this. You could go the herbaceous or the floral, you know. So we picked kind of a few standouts just to think through. But we talked about Gewürztraminer um, and the terpene, that flavor that really comes through would be like that really gardeny floral scent. So for this, a pairing might be something Mediterranean or Moroccan with roasted fruit and meat or even a nice curry. Um, I did see one recommended food pairing would be artichokes with a Gewürztraminer, which I can't say I've done, um, but could see it working. Another potential food pairing we had was a muscat. So that terpene flavor that's going to come through would be a rose that we associate with this. And to me, something that popped up would be sushi. Good pairing with that. Sure. And it can, you know, sushi is a wide category, so there can be a lot of different things you could go, or different directions you could go with that within the category of sushi, obviously. But yeah, yeah any other way. I, I think I'm trying to think back over the times when we've had muscat and what have we had it with. And I definitely think, you know, sushi was one of them, like shellfish in general, just kind of something lighter. I think mm-hmm. nothing too, too heavy. So we've heard the recommendation before of Gerbertstraminer with Caesar salad, which we haven't mm-hmm. been able to try ourselves, but it would be something interesting. to. Yeah, those floral compounds yeah. definitely are interesting to pair off of each other. Mm hmm. But I could also see something like with a, a really like kind of heavy spice blend on there too to to pair off some of the floral notes. Maybe something with a little bit of uh, a little bit of lavender, or a little bit of like a, a floral note. So like a baklava mm-hmm. or something like that would be really good. Ooh, now you're talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to go kind of the other end of it with more of the herbaceous pepper notes, um, something like a shiraz might pair nicely with some smoked meats or like brisket or sausage or something like that play off of those for sure yeah i could see that and then also like if you want to go more vegetarian too, something with like a, a nice peppery mushroom too i think mm. that would go really really well that sounds great excellent so any parting words on terpenes i don't have any terpenes for you <laughs> <laughs> that, end on, but there we go <laughs> well jesse jessica this has been great we learned a lot about something that we knew nothing about and we look forward to the next one thank you thank you You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we're back with Larry and Elizabeth. So let's talk a little bit about where we left off with quality. And I think your comment about how there were wine judges at the NC Fine Wines saying how the rosés in the state, they were really, really impressed with the ro- the quality of the rosé. So let's talk a little bit about the quality that you've seen. Well, like I said, uh, Matt, in the last uh, 20 years, you've seen an unbelievable increase in the quality of wine in North Carolina. We've seen it as well, even the five years that we've been involved and in trying to push the envelope here to, to get these specific tastes out there and the general quality of the wine, and it takes it takes uh, it takes quite some doing to do that. And but as you know, you have to have the grapes as well. It all starts in the vineyard. If you don't have that, well, you can't make great wine. So, a lot of the grape growers and the vin- independent vineyards are growing some fantastic wine uh, grapes. And uh, even like uh, Bruno's blend. Uh, Bruno's Blend was selected of uh, 13 in the wines to go to uh, James Suckling. You've got 91 points, was rated by James Suckling, which we're very proud of for a little vineyard, a little boutique vineyard, um, to be rated by James Suckling, who is a worldwide um, renowned wine critic. And I think he's based in Hong Kong. Hmm. Yeah. But, uh, 
Yeah. So we've seen an incredible, um, the white wine as well even. Think about white wine. I can remember 20 years ago, it was hardly drinkable. It's like vinegar. I mean, was going to drink apple cider vinegar in those days. <laughs> uh, truly, I mean. Before it was a health fad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, I mean, it, and you, the, the white wines and uh, even blend, white wine blends being produced now. And even some of the, the, the hybrids, whether it's Chaminette, I just love like a, a dry Chaminette. I think it's unbelievable what's being done here. And we don't want to, we don't want to be like California or other places. This is North Carolina. We want North Carolina wines. We want Yadkin Valley wines. There's such a huge opportunity waiting for us here in North Carolina. It's just gonna, it's gonna just in the next five years, just I just see growth like unbelievable. And there's a place for everybody. There's a place for the big commercial style uh, vineyards, and there's a place for people to come and just have to spend quite a couple of hours at a small boutique winery and be part of the family, so to speak. So every vineyard has its place, like any business. Yeah, the, the quality is definitely, and with all the people involved, and the college, they've really promoted the quality of uh, the grape growing in uh, North Carolina. And I, I would think with all the, um, the science side of it, the technology of, of growing grapes has come a long way compared to 20 years ago. Which obviously helps. Better farming practices, better use of insecticides, not using harsh chemicals. And we're trying our best not to use harsh chemicals. We'd like to be organic, if possible. But it's very difficult in North Carolina. Sure. As you know. Yeah. Humidity, rain, too much mm -hmm. rain. It's tough. So we, we do it very sparingly, put it that way. At least you know what you're drinking. I think most of the Yadkin Valley wines are, they try their best. I think you bring up a really good point, a couple of them actually, just in the past couple of minutes. I mean, you do know what you're drinking because you're, you know the people who are making it. So you know, kind of, you see the grapes that are going into it. You see the product that's going to come out of it. Um, and I also like the part that you brought up about, there's so much diversity when it comes to the small boutique wineries or the big commercial places. So we do have that here in the state. We, we have something for everyone if they want to go to a larger commercial type of tasting room or, or something larger, big scale, they can. If they want to go to a small, you know, boutique, really tiny, be part of the family, as you mentioned, they have that availability in the state too. Yes, for sure. And I would even see like agro-tourism becoming very big in the next five to ten years. Like people are on there all the time, every weekend I'm there. When are you going to build some log cabins or little yurts up there or on the hillside or... We'll stay here all the time. We'll spend weekends here. People just want to get out there and stay there. And that's what we loved when we first started going up to Tuscany and that. Staying in small little vineyards where they have five or ten bedrooms. Little restaurant there. It's big like in Tuscany and all that. Just huge. Versus staying at a big resort somewhere. All commercialized. You know, just a tourist trap basically. Mm -hmm. Overpriced. Everything. Food's not that good. I, I see that just become huge. I mean, I would love to build maybe four or five little cabins on the mountainside there so people can stay there year-round. I could see that. Keep them far enough away from the tasting room. Yeah, it would be on that ridge with the far side there. <laughs> <laughs> and but they're still uh, right near there, so they can come in, they can get the wine when they need it, so yeah. that's good. Actually, one place we went to in Italy, near Venice, and it was a, a Prosecco farm, and they actually had, like, giant, it was built, designed on a giant... Uh, barrel and you actually had a bedroom in there and a bathroom a little kitchenette so you're actually staying like in a giant wine barrel oh that's fine it is cool and actually we we're just discussing this the other night imagine if you built that kind of thing people actually stayed there in this like wine oversized wine barrel was your little house little cabin for the weekend it'd be quite unique yeah oh, and yeah people would sure. be talking about it for, yeah for a while so yeah so like it is pretty unique so, yeah, I really believe it's going to take off. And you see a lot of the, the vineyards are starting already. Got one cabin or a couple of cabins or a little like one bedroom. So people can spend the weekend or even in the week. Mm -hmm. And even for motorhomes, RVs, people, I mean, it's going to become huge. 
And then you have all the traffic coming up and down 77, our favorite highway, <laughs> from the north, going to Florida. People are on vacation, stop. Have you got vineyards everywhere? Going back home, they can stop, have a break, spend the night, come to vineyards, buy wine, take it home. And we have customers come from Ohio, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia even, and come all the way to us and buy the Vienna in it. With the Vienna, it's supposed to be the best in Virginia. And they reckon no. It's the Atkin Valley. It's better in the Atkin Valley, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've, I've had some of it. Yeah. Not that it's bad, bad yeah. in Virginia, but <laughs> it just seems to me... The Vignette is it's more, it's more tropical. Maybe we yeah. can get it more ripe so that those tropical notes come through more. And I would say the same for Petit Mansang, too, I think. is, But we're probably a little bit uh, partial to that. So, yeah. <laughs> so the Highway 77, I mean, there's the traffic going up and down there, right through uh, the Yadkin Valley, I mean, and the other wineries to the north as well, and south of that. It's just ideally placed for this growth. Plus, you've got 421 going through there, Boone to Winston. All right. Yeah, I, I feel very, very excited and good about the future of the wine industry in North Carolina. Next five to ten years is going to be explosive growth. Even us, I don't know how we're going to, we're going to have to expand somehow the building and all that. Well, you mentioned that. So, like, when you first started, you said it's going to take five years. Correct. So now we're up on the five. So what is the next five years? That's very challenging. It's actually a very good question. <laughs> so um, at some point here, yeah, we're going to have to um, either build a new tasting room or um, somehow expand the current one because when we get people on weekends now, 30, 40, 50 people there, it, it, it's crazy. Yeah, so, and you've expanded the deck out there nicely too because yes, we have. it was small before and now it's just massive. You get a whole bunch of sun. It's great. Yeah. So we're trying to find a way even to put a roof on that and then downstairs, we actually have that patio downstairs now, which is protected by the sun with that new upstairs deck. You can seat about 50 people down there. So we've had two weddings there this year already. Our first weddings, just lucky, there's great weather. So they had like 55 people downstairs, and it was like in end of March. It was like 72 degrees, sunny day, no wind. Oh, wow. yeah. they, they lucked out for that one. <laughs> That's right. And then the other couple, they had got married upstairs, only like... 30 or 40 people. so And it was a nice day as well. And they were actually originally from California. So a lot of their family flew from California. So I was waiting for all the um, opinions about the wine. <laughs> and, and, and I was quite surprised. And they said, oh, this wine's actually pretty good. Like, can we ship it back to California? Can you ship it back to California? I said, no, we can't. They said, well, why not? I said, well, that's your state, not us. We don't make those decisions. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, and uh, I said, you can buy some, you can take it back in your suitcase, wrap it in your underwear or something. <laughs> 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 Just a break or something. So yeah, like, and so we have quite a few people from California come and they uh, make it known, we're from California. Yeah. And, um, and when they taste the wine, then they're like, wow, they're quite surprised. So. Yeah, I think that's a really good kind of insight too because California always has this notoriety of being like the wine producing area yeah. but there are other states here in the country that do produce some really good wine and we're one of them I think so just need to get that out there and get more people trying it correct and then you've got uh, northern Georgia I mean you've got you know Virginia around Charlottesville I mean some very very good wineries so this whole region as a region is going to be drawing people here yeah, Not, really, you've got from, from the Finger Lakes down to North Georgia is, yeah. is a, are growing grapes. Even even Vermont, they're growing hybrids mostly, but um, you know, there's an opportunity for the East Coast to kind of step out. Granted, we'll never be as big as California. California produces about 85% of the grapes that are grown in the country, so it's, it's going to be very no way that we could overtake that. But um, certainly folks need to keep an open mind and visit these lesser known wine regions and as you've kind of talked about throughout this interview is just try it taste it you're going to find something that you like i'm pretty exactly. sure about that so and you might find some surprises along the way as well so that's right and keep uh, that open mind though that's right uh, joe and that's actually a very interesting point to bring up there because 
We have so many people who come there and they say, ah, I don't drink that sweet stuff. I only drink the dry stuff. And they said, oh, just, it's on the tasting, just try it. And they usually the people end up buying some of the stuff, whether it's sweet Amelia or it's the, um, truly. And then yeah. the opposite way, the other effect too. People come, no, I don't drink white, dry stuff, I only drink the sweet wine. So-called, I mean, ours isn't like treacle, it's not sweet, sweet per se. We try and keep the sugar levels down, or more like so, uh, and then that, people convert from, say, um, the peach or the pineapple to uh, a Riesling or, or the Viognier. And the, they saw blind when they came in there. They would never drink that stuff. <laughs> so it's amazing to watch. It's actually quite amazing to watch. Amazing to see people who have become regulars even convert from sweet wine to red wine. That's truly the most amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, that is. But you got to start somewhere. You got to so. start. Oh, when I first started drinking wine in South Africa, I used to drink special late harvest. <laughs> and the first time I tasted red wine, I was like, "Oh, this is a terrible. This is the most disgusting. Who drinks this stuff?" <laughs> now I only drink red wine basically, but I'll drink most wines. And just coming back to what I was saying when I think about it, um, that's actually one of our a very simple philosophy we have at Brandon Hills. If we can't drink the wines we sell, then we shouldn't be selling them. Every single wine there, I can drink. Elizabeth and Justin. If we can't drink it, I shouldn't be selling it. Yeah, you got to stand behind your brand. Well, I sell something that exactly. you can't stand behind. Really, exactly. So. <laughs> so, you know that I mean, most of my wines, our wines, I, mean, I drink at home even. Serve to our friends. Well, as you should, you have that passion. So you want to show the what you're making, what you're doing, but also how's it aging, how's it doing, what are other people thinking about it. It's kind of a good way to have a, a unique focus group. Exactly. See what people want to know. Right. Yeah, so that, that, that's what we work on as well. And, uh, yeah, things are looking very good. So... Tell us a little bit about, so you've been doing this for five years now, so tell us some of the things that you've learned. What's made the biggest impact on you throughout the years? Uh, I would say, I think we discussed the, um, uh, the climate and all the stuff that goes into making a bottle of wine. Is it the most impact on me, personally? What goes into just make one bottle of wine? It's just like, before we did this, if you just take it for granted, you go to a winery or Total Wine, you buy a bottle of wine or two, come home, open it, drink it. You don't even think about the consequences, what it took to make that. Now I look at it, every time I open a <laughs> bottle of wine, I look at it totally differently. <laughs> so, yeah. So do you want to hold on to that and treasure it, or do you want to drink to it knowing everything that's gone into it? I think treasure it. Okay. So, yeah, certainly, it certainly opens your mind. To different things and like a lot of people unless you've experienced it you don't really know right unfortunately people just buy a bottle or buy some wine drink it there nothing wrong with that we like you to drink the wine but <laughs> <laughs> when you're actually involved in it on a, in a, in a, on a weekly basis it's, it's quite uh, yeah, it's quite amazing what it all goes into it and having good people you know working there there's more than just grapes that go into wine. Exactly. And just coming back to what you're saying there about the, the winery as well, like we're speaking about the commercial wineries and then the smaller boutique wineries, like at Brandon Hills. So we um, we want to give you the complete package where you can come there, like we said, be part of the family, peace and quiet, bring a picnic basket. We have 40 acres there. You can enjoy yourself, spend the afternoon, spend the day if you want. You know, watch the sunset too. Beautiful sunsets. Uh, and so the whole total experience, not just coming in there, here's a five wine, taste them, thank you, out the door. Actually just relax, enjoy some wines, uh, enjoy the whole atmosphere. Justin Wilmoth, the tasting room manager, great guy, done a fantastic job uh, in the tasting room, promoting the wine. Um, teaching people about different wines. Like we said, converting people from sweet wine to red wine. I mean, <laughs> there's something incredible to see how people have, have changed over the years and better for their health anyway. So, yeah, get all those sugars out there. 
So um, and there's nothing wrong with sweet wine. Everybody has their place, whether it's muscadines and all that. It all has its place in North Carolina. This East North Carolina, all has its place. Yeah, every wine has its place. So, so what is it you want? Uh, we're kind of winding down on our questions here, but what is one thing that you want customers to know when they come visit Brandon Hills Vineyard? That you're going to have a great experience, and you're going to enjoy yourself. You're going to taste some of the best wine in the Yadkin Valley, whether it's dry wines or sweet wines. And you're going to leave there and go home to wherever you live and tell your friends and colleagues you need to go out and taste some of the North Carolina wines. Because like we said, all people think about, as soon as you tell them that, ah, oh, it's that sweet stuff. It's the first thing that enters their minds. Like we, we somehow, have to, somehow have to get over this, whether it's on TV adverts, uh, more better uh, branding, get this, like, this terrible connotation of sweet wine. And we've come a long way in North Carolina. We really have come a long way in trying to stop that uh, negative press, that negative uh, understanding of North Carolina. That's how I see it. And certainly that word of mouth and hearing it from your friend and those are people that you trust and so you trust their opinion. Those are the kind of things that are probably going to be the most impactful. That is correct, Joe. I would say most of ours is by word of mouth over the five years. But people come in there and they go tell their friends at work, like pre-COVID and all that. And uh, then their friends come, oh, so-and-so told us to come here. We were in the area or in the neighborhood. And you'd be surprised how many people from around here. Huntersville, Roosevelt, this area. Man, a lot of people. Cornelius, a lot of people come up there spend the day and visit all the wineries in the area. Sure, it's, it's an easy day, tr- day yeah, trip. So not far at all. Yeah, it's good to get out of the city. Yeah. Why fly to California and you go right here? Wine country's in your backyard. Exactly. <laughs> and really producing some good stuff. Truly. Yeah, just, wow. I'm amazed what happened in five years. The future looks very good for North Carolina. Well, we look forward to it. So Elizabeth, one question for you. You mentioned in a break that, that this, this is Larry's hobby. What do you think of his hobby? Well, at first I thought he was crazy, but... <laughs> See, this is where I was... Well, I'm a bit crazy. This, this is why I asked the question. Well, you have to be a bit crazy in this business. <laughs> Agreed. But the more he's done it and the more we've got into this, it's actually not a bad idea at all. It's, it's turned out to be really good. Sounds like it's more of a passion now than a hobby. Oh, for sure. For sure. I always tease him. It's a very expensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so now he can't talk about my hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> Any hobby worth doing it is worth doing it well. Exactly. exactly. Well, like we said too, right? You have to have a passion for wine. Yeah. You have to have it, and even over-the-top passion. Because if you don't, you won't succeed. It's a very tough business to be in. And also, just going back to what you're saying too, like the people in the industry, right? Like I really thought like being in the steel business and all this stuff, it's just cutthroat, right? Man, I couldn't believe when we first went there. People just like, everybody was so nice, trying to help you. Like, wow, okay, we'll come out, we'll bring a tractor, we'll do this, we'll help you get going. Like, wow, this is unbelievable. Like one big family trying to help each other. And it's, it's truly quite remarkable. Not many industries to get that kind of it's true. Like yeah. com- camaraderie almost right. and help each other, right? Like we'd be willing to help anybody in our little way. Um, like I said, Chuck and Jamie had done a lot for us, get us going and put us on this sort of like straight and narrow over there. So... Yeah, it's quite amazing. But in the end, it's for the good of North Carolina wine. If everybody's got great wine, more and more people are going to come. Absolutely. Yep. So the, the stragglers need to be lifted up a bit, yeah. you know, so to speak. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's, 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 the future is fantastic. So why don't you tell us uh, how can people find you both physically and also online? Okay, we do have a website. 
at uh, brandonhillsvineyard.com. And then we're on Facebook and Instagram as well. And uh, we are at about three miles south of Yadkinville, just to a 421. Very close to a Nova Park. It's almost like our sister winery, right? Almost like within, you could throw a stone and hit each other. So. <laughs> That's right. That's very true. So, um, yeah. If you're going like in the area and you're like just a 421 and uh, I-77, like you're in that vicinity, you know, pop by and see us. You'll have, you'll have a great time. We second that. We recommend it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Larry Elizabeth, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you very much for coming by. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Larry and Elizabeth. They were great hosts and we can't wait for our next visit. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, Cork Only Talks with out of the bottle. Cheers! is a free-run LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.